Hello, you're listening to the podcast version of ACFM on Navarra Media. And on the podcast version of this show, you'll get the stimulating and mind-expanding discussion from our hosts, but you won't get the music. That's because of the way rights and licenses work in the digital age. So you're really only getting half the picture, but there is an easy way to fix that. If you head over to the navaramedia.com website, you can stream the full show. It's easy enough. Just follow the link in the description of this podcast. Otherwise, enjoy the standalone discussion in this episode of ACFM. Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idol, and today we're joined as usual by Kia Milburn. Hello. And Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And on today's episode, we're talking about desire. So, guys, why are we talking about desire today? Kier, I think you should introduce this first. The The most straightforward reason why we're talking about desire is we're aiming for this to come out on Valentine's Day. (laughs) Uh, And so it's just a cheap sort of publicity uh, stunt. But there are some sort of more uh, conjunctural reasons why we might want to talk about desire. When people normally talk about desire, I think they have in their heads, their heads will automatically go to, to, to erotic desire. But we're we're also interested in desire in a sort of wider sense. I think so. We're also interested in in desire, which connects in a, in a much more straightforward way with politics. And we can think of a few different elements of what's going on at the moment in which we might want to think about desire in a political sense. About how um, we need to think about things such as desire in order to get a grip on on, on why events are taking the shape they are. One of the things we might want to talk about and perhaps talk about a bit later is. Was the Corbyn cult real? <laughs> Why is it so hard to move on from Corbynism? Why so many people seem to be really invested in the figure of Corbyn or perhaps, you know, the Labour, the, the project of the Labour Party under Corbyn? The other thing we need to work out is that right-wing politics is bloody weird at the minute, right? It's taking really very strange shapes. You know, how do we account for something like Brexit, which seems to, you know, go beyond sort of economic rationality? Uh, we're talking, you know, a few days after the um, Trump-inspired riot around the, the the Senate occupation of the Senate building. And lots of the people involved in that are involved in things such as the QAnon conspiracy movement we talked about when we talked about the cosmic right. There just seems to be it's very hard to account for that sort of thing without some sort of recourse to ideas around desire. Before we get even try to approach any of those sorts of discussions, we probably have to talk about what we mean by desire and, and that's a big discussion, I think. I mean, we're talking, we're talking here about we can't exactly map this onto the word, you know, want. What we're talking about here is individuals and populations who like want something or are striving for something. Um, and what are the conditions that, that create that and how that, that kind of desire manifests itself in terms of political realities and and uh, actions and movements on the street, right? So it's 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 trying to un- for, for me one of the big questions is trying to understand the drive and how those drives manifest itself if it is in fact a drive um, when we talk about it um, politically, like it's the thing that moves things. That's that's what um, that's what I think about when I think about desire. Um, and that's why I really like um, the discussion that I had with uh, Tabitha on the, the microdose that we did that should go alongside this full episode on desire as some kind of, um, that ha- having movement in it and action and kind of forward looking, which is why, of course, I think um, any actors or groups or people on the left should be interested in desire. Like, what what is that? 
uh, movement and what are the politics around it? I guess when we're talking about desire, we're talking always about the unconscious to some extent or the irrational or the more than rational or less than rational in, in some sense. Because when you want something, when something is wanted, then there's a certain rationality to it. You know, I want a biscuit because it's sweet and tasty or because I'm hungry. If I desired a biscuit, there's something, <laughs> something more going on. But one way you might try to think about this is there have been a couple of sort of waves in which sort of left politics or Marxism in particular has sort of connected with psychoanalysis as a way to try and get at this, this problem of desire. Like the, the first sort of wave is probably just after the Second World War and the thing people are trying to come to terms with, which is how did fascism happen? What's going on there? And then the second sort of wave of concern of Marxism turns to sort of psychoanalysis and, and, and then wider sorts of theories of, about desire is probably after the failure of the 1968 events, revolution, cycle of struggle, something like that. And in fact, that probably that 1968 turn to, to thinking about desire is also tied up with, you know, the, the birth of mass consumption and, and the effects that has on society. And so it is this question of like, you know, what, why do we want certain things? Why do we desire certain things? Which gets us to one of these one of these big problems, or one of these th this question that keeps on emerging right throughout history, actually. And we could take it back to Spinoza. So Spinoza says, "Why do people fight for their own servitude as though it's their salvation?" Right. And then you know this comes up with Wilhelm Reich as well, who 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 uses this to talk about fascism. You know, in the well, just before the Second World War, actually, during the rise of fascism. And his, his, his argument is this, is that like we can't just understand this as people who've got false consciousness or who have just got had the wrong information. And if we give them the right information, they will, will, wouldn't have chosen this. Wilhelm Reich says, no, people became fascist because they desired it. It, it fulfilled some cer certain desires in them. You know, that's the only way to sort of explain QAnon. There's a certain structure of desire on the, on the contemporary right. And QAnon fulfills some of that, you know. And obviously, in the week when a bunch of crazy people dressed as Vikings have tried to storm the American <laughs> capital because they believed a load of weird stuff they read on the internet, uh, that is an interestingly relevant set of questions, as well as it being, hopefully, when this goes out, Valentine's Day. We could have said we were going to do a show about the unconscious or about the irrational or something, actually, and they probably would have ended up talking about the same set of questions to some extent. I think it's interesting that you describe the people who stormed capital as, or, you know, QAnon law or whatever, as crazy, because I think that's a big theme that comes up with desire. I mean, I'm not sure, I think politically, I wouldn't call them crazy, because I think when we call, especially right-wing groups, crazy, then it absorbs them as some, some kind of agency or responsibility. doesn't mean that we don't think the theories are crazy, but that's a slightly tangential point. The, what I wanted to say was, that the craziness linked with desire, like as a craze, as in being out of your mind because of uncontrolled desire for, you know, social change or, you know, out of love or obsession is a very strong association with desire. And that, that structure of desire is about, you know, basically escaping from the, the overwhelming real, real problems facing us. There's definitely a sort of infantilizing sort of desire around the whole QAnon thing. It's to do with like trying to erect problems which seem absolutely outrageous and motivation and, and, and motivating, but are actually quite easy to solve in theory. Do you know how you solve the problem of QAnon? You do a sort of capture the flag thing around the, the Capitol building and then the, the, the world is everything is solved. Of course it's not. 
you get inside, you realize, in fact, that's not where power lies. That's not, you know, the, this this false problem you set up is not being solved and, and you're looking at 10 years in jail, etc. But them's the breaks. But in terms of like the, the, the capital building and this, you know, the, and the QAnon thing, there's reason involved in this, right? People are reasoning this thing out, but we cannot just explain that in terms of the structure of reason. Like we have to account for the fact that why reason has gone in that direction. How come people can ignore all of this evidence that points in the other way and, in, and fall down these rabbit holes? Can we take a step back and talk again about this question of why do people desire their own servitude? Because I never understood that as a statement. The way I would see it is people make decisions and choices and have desires that work against their interests. So that I understand. And I would say, you know, there are structural reasons for that because there are stories and there are narrative beliefs that are formed that encase those desires in a easier to understand kind of story or, or narrative. But I, I don't quite understand the concept that people desire their own servitude. Can we unpack that a little bit? Because on a conscious level, people are not desiring their own servitude, are they? Are they saying, I want to be in a worse off position? I mean, nobody thinks that, surely. No, no, that's not what it means. No, it means that people will like cheer and wave a flag like for the queen, for the monarchy, even though the monarchy is just a system of... Doesn't work for them. It's the yeah. apex of a system of which they are described literally as subjects. And people like it. People like being subjects. And that means subject, not in the sense of a, the active agent, but in the sense of someone who is subjected to, a, to an external authority. So there obviously is, at some basic level, a certain masochistic, a certain kind of masochism in that, mm. in that desire for authority over you, which is real in people. But isn't that related to order? As in, you can desire that if, if you see that as the absence of, the, the lack of that being the absence of order. Well, that would be the debate, yeah. Someone who is skeptic completely skeptical about any sort of psychoanalytic account of what's going on there would indeed say, look, what they're actually celebrating and celebrating the Queen is the state which provides order and which guarantees their prosperity and guarantees they won't get murdered in their bed. I mean, that, that would be a sort of Hobbesian, actually, alternative in mm. some ways, purely a psychoanalytic explanation. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely something to that. But the extent to which people get emotionally invested in those kinds of symbols and signs, even when they obviously don't really serve serve any particular interest of theirs, is pretty obvious. I mean, obviously, lots of people do. I think desiring your own impression, you're right, it's a slightly confusing formulation. I mean, that is the right... That's what I think, yeah. It's the right formulation that Deleuze and Guattari borrow. I mean, the actual... I mean, Spinoza's writing in Latin, so you could quibble over the translation anyway, but the translation is people fight for their own servitude, and he, he's talking about people fighting... He's, talk, he's talking about people in really in very late feudal societies fighting for their lords you know the people to whom their relationship is basically you know, little better than that of slaves and you know it's a question which applies to any situation in which people are sort of patriotic despite the fact that their society is organized in such a way that it benefits other people much more than it benefits them and it relates to you know the extreme example is people going and getting themselves killed in wars you know, for the sake of patriotism for the sake of uh, their loyalty to a a political class or a set of institutions or a, an idea of country that 
doesn't really include them in any material sense. But how would that map onto the Spanish Civil War, for example, in terms of a left example, the kind of desire to be part of a, you know, part of a, a greater kind of left cause? Isn't isn't that the same? Well, historically, this is the debate, isn't it? So there are two ways through this. And then one is the class is the classical kind of Marxian way through this, which would be to say, well, that's not the same. That's not sort of unconscious desire expressing itself. That's a rational, scientific, class consciousness expressing itself, which is different, mm-hmm. which, which isn't re- doesn't really have this irrational dimension. And that is something that produces a real tension, actually, I think, in the various attempts to theorise this. So the history of attempts to theorise this from a left perspective, they all proceed from the 19th century assumption, which I think Marx shares with people like Adam Smith, really, that... People are basically economically rational agents and therefore sooner or later that most people will become socialists and will act accordingly. And it's really, it's after the First World War, I think it's even before the rise of fascism that it, it becomes a real problem for Marxism, it becomes a real problem for socialists that it's quite clear that despite it being patently not the rational thing to do, not the economically rational thing to do. People will, you know, go into the trenches behind the flags of their imperial overlords and murder other workers and not not make socialist revolution. And my read on this has always been, I mean, most most of sort of Marxist theory, most of Western Marxism and ideology theory after that is is trying to figure out, well, why the hell are they doing that? Why is that going on? And then there's a tradition which draws on Freud. Freud is a really obvious resource to go to, to draw on, because Freud is, it claims to be offering a science of the unconscious. But, but the problem is, and it's a problem we talked about last time, actually, when we talked about Krauss, the problem is Freud, isn't, Freud is pretty sceptical that you can have any form of collective agency that isn't operating according to those irrational dynamics, those in, in, inherently authoritarian dynamics, etc. And then in the 60s, when people are trying to really what the political events by which the new theorists of desire are being motivated in the early 70s is the sequence which includes the events of 1968 but also the communist party's lack of support for them the communist party's lack of support for the counterculture and the students and sexual libertarianism and all this kind of stuff and this sense in the early 70s this sort of intuition that that various thinkers have and various actors have is that there's something more than just economic calculation which is motivating the utopian desire for a, a better society which is informing all of this stuff and it's something which official sort of stalinist or stalin adjacent marxism can't recognize and that a politics of desire which wants to sort of set free the suppressed desire the desires which are suppressed by capitalism all that capitalism can only codify in consumerist terms and can only it can only realize by offering people stuff to buy the setting free all those desires is a sort of revolutionary gesture i mean then you get into really complicated questions which nobody can ever really properly resolve actually if desire is a revolutionary force which is being contained and coded by consumerist capitalism which actually we just want to set free then what is the difference you know what's actually the difference between us unleashing our desire and fascists unleashing their desire and I would say that basically what happens in the 70s is a lot of interesting stuff gets written by people like uh, a little bit by Lyotard, loads by people at like Deleuze and Guattari, trying to sort of think through those questions. But I'm not sure anybody ever comes up with a completely adequate sort of set of formulas for resolving them. But I would say there are basically two main conceptions of desire and what desire is, which get played out or which get drawn on in all those debates. 
And so there's an idea which is central to the psychoanalytic understanding of what desire is, but which I think has a much older history running back through Christian ideas and even some ancient Greek ideas. And that is the idea that desire is an expression of lack. Desire is the sense of, of something being missing, something that you have to try to, uh, so something, a feeling of lack that you have to overcome by achieving some kind of object. You're trying to fill a hole. Yeah, you're trying to fill way. a hole. Exactly. And of course, I mean, the problem is, the problem from any socialist perspective is that Freud and his most loyal followers think that hole can never be filled. You know, life is just a series of attempts to fill it. And the point of psychoanalysis is to get you to accept that it never really can be filled, but you're ne but also to accept that you're never going to stop wishing that it could be. And Freud, is Freud talking on, on what plane is Freud talking about here? Or is it, is it, is, is he gen, is it a, a general concept of desire? Or is it on the kind of individual and relationship based rather than sort of societal ones? Freud doesn't really think there is, there's, there's any other, he's not interested in any other basis. When he talks about social phenomena, he sees them as extensions of individual phenomena. And then Deleuze and Guattari, they draw on Spinoza's way of understanding affect and pleasure and selfhood. And they're against this idea of lack. Their idea is that actually it's capitalism that makes people experience themselves as subjects whose being is defined by a lack, a hole that can never be filled because it wants people to keep trying to fill it you know, with bullshit, whether it's fascist bullshit or consumerist bullshit. And the way I always put this is to say where Freud sees a hole, uh, Deleuze and Guattari see an opening. And they say, actually, that, that the fact that we experience ourselves as sort of not complete self-contained subjects, but as beings who are defined by our interdependence and our interrelationality with each other, with different parts of ourselves, with the whole rest of material existence, that is actually what produces all of the creative potential in us and in, in, and in all of our collectivities as well. And they sort of borrow this idea from Spinoza or a particular interpretation of Spinoza. And so for them, desire is conceptualized not as something which is defined by what's missing, but desire it becomes the name for the animating creative force which drives everything, which drives the creative productivity of matter, but also of people, of collectives, of groups. And so desire becomes the, this productive force which emerges from bodies and from their relationships and from collectivities and groups is something which capitalism is always trying to capture and codify and turn into commodities and turn into well-defined social roles like you know husband father mother child and the point of the politics they're advocating for at least in their book anti-oedipus is to set desire and its productive capacities free from all of those limiting structures and that that they see as allied to a sort of libertarian communism Great song to play on the show, and a great uh, one of my absolute favourite disco tunes. My Alton McLean and Destiny song called "Crazy Love," which pretty much says it all. I mean, one reason it's hard to choose music for the show is because the theme of desire, like erotic desire, is just set, it is the central theme of pop music. And most pop music today, at least if you go by the lyrics and the kind of affect that it's trying to produce, I think it hasn't really shifted much over the past 20 years. You know, there's a shift from 
especially in the 90s there's a shift from more traditional sort of forms of romantic you know songs which are about kind of they're basically for 13 year old girls who are, who are not yet really sexual just sort of wistfully thinking about boys there's a shift from that into a kind of r&b influenced mode of eroticism i think which is much much more explicitly sexual but it's still basically reproducing something which comes through you know most late 20th century pop music and that is the idea that the normative form of the romantic relationship or the or the erotic relationship is a sort of slightly mad infatuation there's this line in nick hornby's novel high fidelity which i always liked where he says he talks about you know most of the songs he grew up listening to and most of the songs that young people grow up listening to of his generation are about sort of dysfunctional relationships they're about unrequited love or they're about obsession or betrayal and he basically posits the possibility that this is has a kind of unhealthy effect on people that it kind of educates pe- people have their desire kind of imaginatively educated into this sort of neurotic pants i mean that's not the language he uses that's my language and i and i certainly think that's true i i think there's a certain ideology of romance that belongs to late capitalism that it's not the same as the old it's not the kind of mid-20th century ideal of the nuclear family it's what comes out of the breakdown of that it's what comes down out of the breakdown of the ideology of just get married as young as possible and don't have sex before that but what comes out of it it's not really a culture in which people especially young people i think are encouraged to think about like erotic relationships or romantic relationships in a way which is sort of grown up or in which you're actually reflecting on well, what are the possibilities what are the costs and benefits of monogamy you know what are the costs and benefits of friend, certain kinds of friendship you know it's what's normative is this idea of romantic attachment or erotic attachment as being always neurotic it's basically the a kind of 14 year olds infatuated experience of infatuation is presented as like the the only sort of alternative a lot of the time alternative to what to just boring you know to a sort of sexless marriage right i mean i i just can't i would think that there's always been people everywhere around the world who have had like really strong i mean i wouldn't necessarily call it neurotic but like attraction to other people that have driven not necessarily their choices but it's driven their emotions whether they thought it was the right thing to do or not in terms of actions i don't know how that's related to late capitalism well because historically every culture has had a kind of set of scripts for how you deal with that and I don't, and like, you know, that there is very conservative scripts which basically say spontaneous attachment is just nonsense. You should let your parents choose a partner for you and stay celibate till then. Yeah, but people still feel that. That's the argument that I'm making is that human beings have had and will have certain connections to each other. Okay, so the, the question is to what extent do you think there is just a, an inherently a kind of organic process of attraction that people have to each other and organic is the experience of kind of intense erotic romantic attachment completely organic or does it vary between cultures everybody experiences momentary infatuations with other people but they can be really like socio-psychically disruptive or you can just say well that's just an infatuation it's not really you know you don't have to you don't have to let it take over your brain
I just absolutely love Glory Books by Portishead. And to me, nothing says desire as much as that mid-90s kind of trip-hop sound with the kind of bass and female vocals. So I, I, it's a classic. Um, I think we've got to play Glory Box for that reason. Is that to do with like the stage you were at there? Because to me, all that trip hop, no. it's about that sort of, it kept, brings to mind that sort of narcotized, <laughs> weird sensation of, of, of narcotized desire, put it that way. Speak for yourselves, but I, um, you're probably right on the first one and not on the second one. So, so I'm not as, um, well, I, I choose music based on how it makes me feel rather than the historical knowledge of it because I have very little historical knowledge of music. But there, it's that sound to me. That's, that sound says desire. I can't quite explain it. It's probably got to do with the fact that I was in my uh, late teenage years when that song came out or was big, but that kind of sound with the bass and the trip hop and the female vocals. And it's not just, you know, the Bristol sound. It moves on to more Chiba, uh, which I think are from Kent as well, which is much kind of lighter uh, sound. But it's that kind of sound. Um, it just says desire to me. I would put alongside that another track from the same moment and the same genre, which is uh, She Makes Me Wanna Die by Tricky. She makes me wanna die Follow where Mary goes Cherish the things she knows Says if I change my stride The tricky stuff from that moment is very much about exploring the sort of dangerous border between, I think, yeah, attachment and, in fact, and obsession. So if desire is if a progressive view or if a socialist or communist view of desire is different to that of the conception of it being about need or hunger or trying to fill a hole in a very literal sense how does that map onto people's experience of the everyday so are these conceptions of desire or imaginaries different if you, in a very literal sense, have your day-to-day -day needs met or not in an eco in a socioeconomic sense? So if you are literally hungry, <laughs> how does that affect your, your desire in a, in a political imaginary? When you guys are talking about a, a kind of a fascist desire, I'm trying to think about it in terms of like anyone. Like, how does anyone lock into one or the other? Well, well one, one way to think about it, if we start from, like, hunger is, you know, yeah, hunger is sort of like a need or a drive or something, but that's not desire, right? If I'm hungry, then I could should just go and eat a carrot or something like that. Why do I desire, you know, sugar? Why do I, I want to eat all of these things that um, I associate from my childhood and all these sorts of things, right? You know, our tastes, et cetera, get developed in a so, sort of social, socially and politically. And so the desires, basically, desires get formed by by social machines, by technical machines, et cetera. What, one of the things that came up in your discussion with Tabitha Bast, actually, was when you were both discussing dating apps and, and the way that the introduction of dating apps seems to have had an effect on, on sexual desire or erotic desire. 
Like, it's a really good example, I think, of like this is some this is a sort of new technology. Of course, there were things, there were sort of dating agencies, etc., before that. But this is a new technology that comes along, which is absolutely linked to you know the the wider social uh, structure and changes that have taken place in that. I, you know, it's totally linked to to a sort of like neoliberal attitude in which you were trying to rate everything at all times, swipe left, etc., and all these sorts of things. So I think it is a good example of things that we think of as 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 something that just emerged from within ourselves, or perhaps even, you know, uh, uh, sort of like rehearsals of like traumas we suffered as a child or something like that. In fact, we can see that, you know, this is a, this is a, something that... Um, it's socially constructed or mediated. It's socially, technically constructed, yeah, right. yeah, which is sort of like goes, which goes to sort of um, Deleuze and Guattari's point, I think, that the unconscious, one of their famous lines is, the unconscious uh, is a factory, not not a theatre. It's not just a rehearsal of, of of originary sort of traumas or traumas from from childhood. They may well t- take place, but the rest of society comes into play when we think about the production of desire and so forth. Whenever we're talking about things such as desire, which is re- quite slippery, we have to think about all of the, you know, we have to sort of escape the ways that we normally think about desire, and like a lot of that is is Freudian, for instance, and you know we fall into it quite a lot. I mean, this really follows on directly from the episode about crowds, because the answer to the question, like, how is revolutionary desire different from capitalist or conservative desire, is that it's not it's non-individualistic in some sense, that or that it recognises the extent to which it's always being produced in social situations and by social situations. It doesn't suffer from a certain delusion that it can achieve... It can achieve resolution either through, indeed, through the restoration of some lost order or through just the personal satisfaction of the successful consumer. That would be the difference. But then that touches on a question which is a sort of another other key political question for anybody thinking about these issues around desire and ideology, which is like politically, if we accept all these arguments, then what do we do ourselves to prevent ourselves being, to prevent our desires from being determined for us by others? I think that is the big sort of political and ethical question for Deleuze Guattari in a way, actually. It's a question for a lot of us. You know, how do we avoid having our desires manufactured by capitalism or by the QAnon conspiracy, <laughs> conspiracy machine? The purpose of a lot of political activity, but also a lot of critical thought, is to enable us to not have our desires produced for us by our enemies. I think what I'm taking from this is I'm basically trying to think about desire and time. Uh, And I'm going to make the assumption that desire is always in some way forward looking. So kind of in a, you know, in layman's terms, we're talking about like, what do, in terms of what you guys were just saying about not wanting our desires to be defined by, you know, the structures of capital or capital's needs or like neoliberal culture or whatever. If we're thinking about like, what do I want my life to be like? Or what do I want from my life? That's how I'm finding it um helpful to think about okay well if i'm thinking that if i that you know i'm only going to be happy if i end up in this kind of relationship or i'm only going to be happy if i live in this kind of household or i'm only going to be happy if or it's only right i mean maybe this isn't about happiness maybe this is about what is morally correct for some people right 
But if, if, if we're thinking about, if I'm thinking about that as in the stuff that I desire is the stuff that I, that I, that I want to be good or better or happy or something. And I don't want, and we're, what we're saying is, I think, is that how do we, how do we escape those things? Um, whether it's material objects or relationships or how you want to live being defined by the you know dominant ideology, right? Perhaps it's like this though. It's like um, the 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 thing we have to escape is that is the is the idea that the sort of desires that we have now, which are socially constructed, you know, we have to if we think of them as uh, desires as producible, not in any simple way that we just you know we can produce them in any simple way. But if they can be, if if desire is not sort of based on on lack or some sort of originary sort of thing, it means that the desires we have now are not. That do not exhaust the possibility of humankind. Do you know what I mean? You know, we can we can have different desires. So that's that sort of in in terms of like the structure of society, etc. That means that the possible range of the structure of society can be much much wider than than if you don't see desire as produced. I also think it can brings up this idea, this sort of in fact the acid communist idea <laughs> that um, you know you can have post capitalist desire within capitalism. Right, so that like you know, capitalism cannot satisfy all of our desires, and in fact, there are desires for like collectivity, um, desires produced in this in in current society that can only be fulfilled in a completely different sort of setup, social and economic setup, etc. I mean, it's it's I think it's useful to think about what that means, post-capitalist desires. Where do they come from? What are, what are they, uh, etc. I mean, one of the ideas which the, these ideas from in, from the late 60s onwards are drawing on are ideas like the, the sort of false production of needs. So Marcuse, I mean, Marcuse is a sort of in-between, actually, he's a sort of in-between figure, isn't he? He's part of that Frank School generation who were trying to un- understand fascism after the war, but he's, his most famous work is more preoccupied with analysing consumer society. You know, I always tell students, if you want to understand what Marcuse is getting out, exercised about, it's sort of, it's the world of madmen. That's what he's talking about. It's that kind of early 60s, high consumerism, but also very, very conformist, very heterosexual form of capitalism. And in One Dimensional Man, for example, he's really, he argues that consumerism works through this production of false needs. You know, it makes us need things or feel like we need things that we don't, we don't really need. And then if you take that analysis a stage further, you also can say that capitalism doesn't produce, it, it can't fulfill various needs or it can't fulfill various desires. Although I guess those are two different concepts that, that are going to necessarily sort of emerge from any sort of human sort of social experience to some extent. I mean, obviously, post-punk, I mean, one of the things it's most famous for is its sort of rejection of the eroticism and sensuality of most kinds of pop music. There's real sort of anti-sex, kind of anti-romance discourse in strands of punk rock and post-punk. I guess ATV's like a... Um, my love lies limp. It's like the the, the classic sort of anti-sex song. It's a you know it's a punk song about impotence. We're starting to, I suppose, get towards thinking about how how people have used these ideas to think about sort of intimacy and 
personal relationships. One way of illustrating some of these ideas, which I always find really useful, is just to say, well, actually, although it's really, really complicated stuff to try to read, so some of these ideas from Deleuze and Guattari have been really important for me in just sort of managing personal relationships. It's a, it's a really, really useful way of thinking about, you know, how you organise, how you organise sort of emotional and physical needs and desires in. Yeah, in a household, it was a really because I, I was re, you know I was doing a lot of work on Deleuze and Guattari when we first, when Joe and I, my partner and I first uh, became parents, and uh, you know Joe and I had both sort of we'd both done therapy a bit in in fairly sort of Freudian settings, and we not loads, and I would say that one problem with it was that it, it does tend to inculcate a way of thinking about emotional life, which sees it in, in terms of the emotional life being very much individual and very sort of transactional. Ultimately, you've, it's very hard not to slip into a way of thinking about your relationships with other people, which isn't thinking about them in terms of what you're getting from them and what you're giving to them. And it's very, very difficult to organize relationships in a household where everybody is just struggling to cope with the fact that you've got one or two or more sort of little children that are very difficult to manage and you've got jobs and you've got things you need to do and things you want to do. It's very difficult to manage all that if you're thinking in those terms. And the sort of conceptual breakthrough, which I think, which we sort of got a bit from uh, Deleuze Guattari actually for, in terms of thinking about that was just to try to think about it in this completely non-individualistic sense, but, but without collapsing into some sort of conservative notion of like divided gender roles or you know tradi the traditional family to say well actually what the family is it, it's a machine it's an assemblage it's a it's a little it's a bundle of moving parts which include our bodies and they include our brains they include our moods they include the coffee in the pot they include the the beans cooking on the stove they include the baby they include the music on the sound system and that really the the way in which you manage how you feel and how you experience that context the way in which you have to manage it is by thinking about well what are the overall effects what is it producing is it producing joy and an, an overall expansion of a sense of freedom or is it producing an overall reduction of, of joy a reduction of a sense of freedom for everybody involved and and that is the criteria according to which you make the judgments about how you're going to you know who's going to take the rubbish out who's going to look after the baby like how many times how much time you're each going to spend on whatever task because those are the criteria you, you use and that turned out to be really really effective like as a way of thinking about it and for me that's an interesting example of thinking about the way in which desire is desire is kind of social and it's assembled and it's also malleable and it's producible and it's not something that can be thought that sh can be properly understood in terms of a sort of bourgeois model of, of, of individual transaction or a conservative model of, of norms which have to be uh, ascribed and, and aspired to. How do you remove the barriers to people having what people call empty marriages or whatever, or like, you know, or to doing terrible things to each other and domestic violence, you know, in the wider sense? And I think the answer to that is thinking like, what in the, the wider sense, I don't necessarily mean romantic, but in the wider sense, what causes like really fraught problematic relationships and one of them is like trust and the other one is fear so like I would look at the conditions from like a progressive left-wing perspective I'd be like what are the conditions that make people you know live together when they don't want to live together like get forced into like specific kinds of pairings or feel like they need to share you know a house or they need to lie about x y and z now there there's a whole basket full of conditions where you'd be like right I want to create these environmental and structural 
people freedom so that people can live, you know, healthful, dignified lives, you know, with either enough wages or, you know, enough goods and services that they need, whether they're wages in this, this world or not. And then for me, that's where the experiment is, because I would feel like I have enough faith in human beings and how they will organize themselves, that if you remove those barriers, then I actually don't mind how people have their relationships. Uh, that's probably the way to think about it. If you think about the last sort of, well, the last 30 or 40 years, we do live through this sort of like temporary moment of like Tinder, but like the family as the center of society has come back in a huge way. And like what's driving that is economics. I've just been reading The Asset Economy by Melinda Cooper, um, Lisa Adkins and uh, Martin Koenig. Oh, I remember them. <laughs> um, and they've got this central concept of the Minskyan family, which is that basically we live in an asset-dominated society. And so all of family life and, and our lives uh, uh, all together are sort of subordinated under this idea that you have to, the family life is about managing your assets. The logic of assets go into the future. So it's all about, you know, inheritance, managing your assets, uh, the, the family as the sort of core social unit in, and, and then outside the family, it's just raw competition with very little support. That sort of had this effect of solidifying the family and basically trapping us in this, you know, basically one model of life in, in lots of ways. So the way you get out of that is, you know, you have to undo that. <laughs> you know, basically, you know, obviously housing is like the key asset we're talking about here. But like we have to get out of that somehow. And the only way you do that is basically removing all of those economic compulsions to, to form families with dual, dual incomes and to, to stay in families and the families to focus on, on intervening into their children's lives through life gifts, service forms of inheritance, etc. Once you take them away, then you open up the, the realm for experimentation and people can actually find out how they want to live, which I think is the feminist project. It's not like, well, I think there were, was elements of the sort of 60s counterculture which said, you know, basically once you remove that, it will be free love and Bob's your uncle. But it's like you remove the economic compulsions and then we'll have to find out the other compulsions which, which, which keep us in these sort of normative frameworks. But that's the core way of expanding freedom. What's really interesting about what you've just said, Keir, is you've talked about compulsions and I'd like to take this all the way back to desire. So maybe I have a bit more of a, you know, laissez-faire or libertarian, I'm not sure which one, maybe a bit of both, like view on the family or on any form of relationship. Like I just think in reality, bits of it are going to be down to like, there's, there's a spectrum in society of how people are going to want to live. And I think there, there's going to be people all along the spectrum and society will allow you based on what you just said, you know, whether there are socioeconomic forces or whatever, the freedom or not to live within one or the other. But the question for me is, where are people's desires in terms of their, how they've arranged their life and their relationships? If all of their desires and their fantasies of how they want to live or how they want to conduct themselves exist outside the form that they have found themselves in due to those social pressures, then we have a problem. So if, if you've got a, a group of people who are, they, they all want to live in communes or they'd rather not be in like these family units, but, and you've got this situation en masse, which, you know, arguably might be the case for a lot of people, or they can't imagine another possibility outside, then there, then there is an issue. But I think for a lot of people, the, frankly, the family does work. I mean, I just think that's the facts on the ground. I suppose one of the most interesting examples in a way, and I suppose this speaks to what I was saying, what we were saying earlier, actually, about 
relationships is the au pairs. Au pairs, sort of agit funk, post punk band from Leeds, and their most famous song is called It's Obvious. It's this quite didactic lyric, it's sort of feminist lyric. I mean, it's sort of politically, it's very, it's completely complacent, actually. It's just saying, it's just a song about how great it is to be in a kind of egalitarian heterosexual relationship and how that's basically quite easy. I've always kind of taken the piss out of it when, when playing it to students, because saying, look, it's, you know, it's easy for some people, it's not easy for most, most of us. I suppose I hadn't ever thought about this before, but what I was saying before about the kind of the permanent celebration of neurosis and fate of kind of romantic failure, maybe it is, it's an interesting counterpoint to that. Just a quick defence of that song, though. I think it's <laughs> the, the, the chorus is like it's just a repeating equal but different, equal but different over and over again. Surely, equal but different is um, Hart and Negri's concept of the multitude, isn't it? It is the early enunciation yeah. of the multitude. T- I think they're talking about specifically sexual difference. Well, I'm sure they are. <laughs> One concept that I think is sort of useful is this concept of negative solidarity, which I think actually Alex Williams uh, came up with on his blog, Splintering Bone Ashes. And it's basically this idea that um, rather than pursuing your own fulfillment of your own interests or desires your desires structured around owning the libs or basically about trying to gain joy from preventing other people from fulfilling their desires right you know in some ways it's, it's this sort of celebration of your own hardship in your own life and nobody should have it better basically is like the basic idea the example Alex used, which is sort of useful in its mundanity, is people not people thinking public sector workers should have working conditions that are as bad as theirs are. I mean, at this very moment, we're trying to finish the chapter of our book about the, the concept of interests. We probably we would use this idea of negative solidarity. I would say that it's 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 what's occurring at a moment when there's no conception whatsoever that present conditions could really be improved for everybody. And so the people experiencing or expressing negative solidarity, they don't really, they have no desire, actually, in, a, in the Deleuzean sense. There's no desire because there's no notion of anything that could go beyond where they are now. All, all they have is a, is a will to defend stuff they've already got. It's despair, isn't it? It's, it's a hopelessness. Well, there's this term from Nietzsche, I'm sure we've referred to before on the show. I mean, it's always used, it's always given in English translations with a French term, resentiment, which in French just means resentment. For Nietzsche, it's the affect of those who are weak. And, and experience weakness but they don't want to make themselves strong they just want to make they just resent the, the strong or they ideally want to knock them down or drag them down to their level and one reason actually Nietzsche even though he was kind of taken up by fascists in the first half of the 20th century one reason Nietzsche in the 60s onwards in, in France in particular gets taken up by people on the radical and libertarian left is precisely because of that concept because he seems to have this seems to get at something which is important in the way the right operates in in a kind of advanced capitalist society that the right indeed it operates by encouraging people not to realize how strong they are or potentially strong they are collectively and instead to, to just fear fear the collective to fear the other to fear people who are different from them but even to fear their own kind of collective potential and see it as something that might disrupt the kind of the little bit of comfort and stability they've been given by sort of post-war consumer capitalism 
I mean, the growth of negative solidarity as a form of resentiment, as a way of only conceptualising interests in defensive terms, rather than imagining a better world, it obviously ties in really closely with your kind of analysis of generational politics, Gear, because I think it's really, I mean, the ultimate in negative solidarity is the fucking, is the retired Tory voting homeowner saying, oh, well, because, you know, I, I didn't get to go to university. I experienced a relatively austere, a relatively kind of limited kind of consumer culture when I was growing up, therefore, basically everyone else should. I mean, young people should should experience the same or worse. You can definitely do a generational sort of analysis of it. The even more straightforward definition of like conservatism, which is I think it's Corey Robbins' definition, where he says conservatism is, you know, the experience of having some sort of power. We can define that in a sort of way, uh, and the fear that is that 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 power is going to be taken away from you or diminished. And so you can sort of think about it as a sort of as a messed up version of, of, of almost class power, right? Is that, you know, um, that this is a generation that grew up at the end uh, and had the benefits of that, of the, of the end of the sort of post-war settlement, the sort of end of social democracy. Uh, and then they were bought out of it via, via asset ownership, etc. In some ways, it's the defense of the only bit that remains of that like expansion of freedom that was then in the post-war period. The only remnant of that is the, is the mechanism by which that was taken away, which is asset ownership. And so if you own an asset, you are suspended from sort of some of the worst effects of like, the harsh, harsh, harsh neoliberal world uh, that, that we live in. The, the image that's coming to mind here is a bunch of Tory voting boomers who are on e- each one on their own arc, but they think they're on an inflatable lifeboat. And they're basically saying, don't rock the boat because your desire is disruptive. The fear that that these desires, um, and I think you're going to talk about Corbyn in a minute, but that any kind of change is going to rock something. And if your own self-image of your own life and assets is, is that it's that small and I don't want anyone to have anything more than what I have. And if they do, then I'm going to capsize effectively. It feels like that's the emotional <laughs> that's the emotional picture that I'm getting. It's like, no, mate, you own your own house, you're on you're on a fucking arc, like chill. Yeah. Yeah. You can explain lots of what happens with generations without any recourse to desire. What is hard to explain about this thing, rather than just protecting your interests through an alignment with sort of the financial and real estate sector, which I think is what the the, the thing that's driving sort of property pensioners being the core constituency of, of, of conservatism. The thing you can't explain is the sheer bitterness and miserableness of it all, the sheer bitterness and nihilism that goes along with it. Just to come back really, really briefly on the whole QAnon thing, all of that stuff, all of that sort of conspiracy stuff about child-eating pedophiles like that is in some way it's it's like a sublimated it is an awareness that like we do face incredible really really hard problems the world is you know could 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 be sort of coming to an end but rather than face up to that you sort of invent something an imaginary world in which you are the protagonist but like you can have the sense of like a crisis without addressing the actual crisis because the actual crisis would mean addressing your own position and sort of perhaps undermining your own interests or your own interests as they've been constructed over the last 30 years, i.e. as a homeowner, an asset owner, etc. There's there's bits of the right which I think it leads you to thinking about desire as something which is politically a- a- analytic, I think. But yeah, you're right, Nadia. Like, I think we can't exclude the left from that. <laughs> like The left, desire also operates in the left and desire can also get trapped. Or it can be a really powerful, productive force, but it can get trapped in places 
which block us off from wider uh, um, joy, cruel optimism, as uh, Laurent Berlant calls it. On, on both, on all, you know, structures are difficult for people to understand. Stories, you know, religion, cults. We talked about this in the episode where we talked about the the cosmic right. Like, uh, there, there is just another angle to looking at this, which is how people understand how people digest information and and narrative and stories is always a big part of it and that links into what you're saying about like the fascist desires about having specific figureheads is much easier to understand like even the kind of what we would think of as a crazy pedophile ring story it's like there are people with names and addresses and they are responsible is much easier than saying you know 150 years of capitalism and like late neoliberalism it's very it, it doesn't it's very difficult <laughs> <laughs> to conception who do you fight right who are the baddies and it's also just people wanting things to be resolved quickly i mean we've talked about this before we could probably do a whole episode about millenarianism sometime i mean it, it, it's a term that people first started to be used like a thousand years ago when people thought that the year 1000 would be the end of the world as promised in the bible you know when jesus comes back and the QAnon, i mean I'm always saying this when we're talking about QAnon. You can really overstate how novel QAnon is, in my view. In in insofar as there there are millenarian cults all the time. There are always millenarian cults for people to join. So millenarianism is the belief that somehow, despite all evidence to the contrary, your side is about to win. It's about to be delivered, and all of the contradictions which define your social world and make your life difficult and your emotional life difficult are about to be resolved. I mean, one of the critiques of certain strands of Marxism is that Marxism historically has a millenarian version of itself, which thinks that what's going to happen is eventually history is going to end because all of the contradictions in society of capitalism are going to be completely resolved by the uh, arrival of full communism like uh, after the constructive stage of socialism and there was definitely a millenarian strand of corbynism which thought that we were about to get a socialist government which would at least end neoliberalism decisively and basically restore social democracy despite all objective evidence that there was no physical way that would that could happen at this particular historical juncture there's still a, a completely millenarian structure to the way in which so many people on the Corbynite or post-Corbynite left want to blame like some faction of the left or even blame the right or blame someone for the fact that that didn't happen as if that is what should have happened and was ordained and it was it must have been the, be the case that some evil force some external force interrupted it from happening because it was what was supposed to happen when you know, any objective the marxist would say that the class relations were just not the balance of class forces in british society in 2018 was such that there was just no way that was going to happen and even if corbyn had managed to win an election he would have been completely undermined by all of the oppositional forces and we were just nowhere close to actually being able to to achieve that so yeah, but, but saying all of that, we all piled in <laughs> to various degrees. But that brings up, I think that brings up the thing of desire, though, right? Is that like now I think all three of us are probably like, okay, yeah, now we need to have a sort of objective view of this. Where did, where did it get us? How did it change the balance of forces? And what should we do now? And so basically what we'd like people to have is some sort of instrumental or, or strategic relationship to both Corbyn as a figure the Corbyn Labour Party and the Labour Party now, and etc., uh, etc. Et and it, it, in, instead, on the left, it seems it is incredibly hard to move on from that. Partly because you know the Labour right has is having to go at Corbyn all the time; they can't move on from Corbyn either. But like, so 
I, I think there is something to this idea that like you know people do invest their desires in in leaders basically um, and Corbyn was one of those and now it's very hard to to shift from that to sort of put Corbyn uh, to, to see Corbyn as a person in history and see how you know well in that case we need to sort of you know, uh, understand where we are now. We need to not fight the battles of 2019 over and over again for the next 10 years. It, it may be that this thing has to happen, but, you know, I think that's, I mean, that's the populist sort of argument. The political sort of strategy, perhaps, which has done most to sort of try to take into account sort of ideas of desire, or at least one of them, is sort of populism and this idea that, you know, you can figure uh, 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 one side, you know, basically divide the, divide the country uh, 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 between a sort of people and an elite, and then one figure can come to represent, you know, the the people or something like that. There was definitely a element of that around Corbynism and around left populism more generally. And I think it's that it's when you get into a moment like now, you see there are limits to that, there are drawbacks to that because it's very hard to get people to to de-invest in figures, you know, once that moment has gone. Like I, I keep thinking about this. Well, where do I invest my sort of desires? Is it in sort of like a more universal idea of or a or, or, or sort of like longer term project? Is that the thing that structures my desires is that possible there is an answer to that and this would be the defense of psychoanalysis even in the freudian tradition which would be to say well look the point actually of studying things like that is to enable you to achieve a degree of reflexivity mm. about it mm. like not to do, it's not to give up your desire i mean the psychoanalysts will definitely say we're not telling people to give up their desire we're telling people to recognize it for what it is in a certain sense and i sort of feel like I don't know how else to put it really, but this is sort of the correct attitude to have to Corbyn was always to recognise that on a certain level, we couldn't help but invest in him psychically and identify and, uh, and you know, and love him for his saintly qualities, etc. At the same time as on another level, rationally recognising his limitations and the limitations of the movement. Just in the same way, ultimately, you don't, you can't get beyond negative solidarity and defensiveness and you can't get beyond the fact that indeed, if you're a property pensioner, it is economically and politically quite rational right now to just want to defend the value of your property and not gamble any of it your accumulated privilege on the possibility of a social democratic you know, revival yeah you, know, you can't get beyond that without a certain will to power a certain you know a certain expression of desire i mean the way alex and i are trying to conceptualize this is that it isn't as Deleuze and Guattari themselves put it, actually, in the in Antidibus, it isn't about ex the expression of desire versus the expression of interest. It's, it's actually about the expression of a possible set of interests which could only be realised at some sort of on some longer temporal scale like within you know, a communist horizon or a socialist horizon. But nonetheless, there is a certain effort of will and a certain suspension of disbelief and a certain lifting of yourself from the immediate logic of defensive calculation, which you have to make in order for that to be possible. And that's always been the case. And there would never have been a, a welfare state or a national health service or a Russian revolution or a Spanish civil war if, if people hadn't been able to do that. So ultimately, you need to, to be effective as, as a radical. You have to be able to try to hold all of these thoughts at the same time. But yeah, there's a degree of irrationality to it. Yes, there's a degree of um, well, that's it really. Is to recognise that there is there are different logics of rationality operating and motivating all of us all at the same time, always. And there were to some extent we have to be able to move between them. I mean, I would say you know with, with respect to Corbynism that 
yeah, we all recognise that. And also, it, it was both rational and necessary in a way which exceeds rationality to have a go when the opportunity presented itself, you know, to throw the dice to see what we could achieve and how far we could get. On the other hand, it's also necessary to be detached and rational and recognise that the chances of success were very low and that if you invested so much in it that you now hate every almost everyone else involved because you, you blame them for not having delivered what you thought you were going to get, then you know you made some sort of an emotional error, really. And, and there definitely are loads of people around, frankly, I'm afraid, at least on Twitter. They invested so much in it and, and had such an unreflective sense of certainty about the the validity and and moral worth of their investment in Corbyn, that they're now just angry at almost everyone else. But I don't think that's necessarily why I think everyone's angry. I think angry because loss is a very difficult thing for a lot of people to deal with. That's true, yeah. Like, that's the symptom to grieving. Like, that's what happens when you grieve. There's people who are grieving and, and, and they're unable to... To, to cope with that and people reacted differently people who were at the time of the election who like you said they said with you know with a very rational mind whatever let's give it our best shot it, it still it still hurts that we're in this situation and seeing the world around us and some people reacted in certain ways and not everyone is able to have a you know totally cool head on because the stakes are so high i think no one is. No, no one is. I agree. No one is capable of that of having a, of being that all the time. But that's also, it's something to aspire to. It's shit. It's shit that we lost. Like it is shit. <laughs> like objectively. No, we, well, that's true. Yeah, that's all. That is also a completely good point. Just thinking about Jeremy Corbyn as as the leader, in which people invested their desires, and how that's sort of a problem to move on. Like, so one one of the things that, that we might be able to do about that is to think differently about about leaders, basically about leadership. I have like different metaphors, and so I'm thinking of the distinction between um, a star and a comet, right? So we think about we used to thinking about leaders, or perhaps even celebrities, more as stars, as though they generate their own heat and light in some way. Whereas like a comet might be a better way to think about leaders in relationship to desire because like comets don't generate their own heat and, and, and light. You know, if, like, when they're out in the sort of outer solar system, they you're, you can't see them, basically. They're invisible. So they only become visible when they come into the inner solar system and they interact with these active forces, basically, which would be like heat and heat from the sun and like solar wind, which gives a direction to the, to the tail, etc., Right, so that gives you a sort of metaphor of of these bodies, which sort of like you know are just in, uh, anonymous until they come in contact with the right active forces, and then they become luminous. And in fact, like the active forces are only visible through their effect on these bodies. Do you know what I mean? Desire, the desires that we invest in people, in people, those are the active forces. And so, like, if we can recognise that, like, it's the forces that are important and not the that is illuminated by those forces or that illuminates those forces that might help us not get fixated on these figures and be able to move on from them yeah yeah. that's a nice metaphor that's a nice metaphor i think that's some serious lockdown metaphoring you've got there kira i want whatever drug you've taken seriously the only drug is rhetoric (laughs) 